Hello everyone and welcome to episode 3 of Added Time, a Games and Grab Studio podcast with me, your host, Steve Watkins. First off, a huge thank you again to anyone that listened to episode 2 of the podcast. It is still available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean and it is also available on the Games and Graps feed. Like I say, thank you very much for listening and keep the support going, keep the momentum going and let's keep building on this. I'm really, really enjoying doing this. It's, it's great fun. It's great fun. Okay, so I've changed it up a little bit this week. Uh, the last two episodes I've recorded on a Thursday and then put the episode out on a Friday. But it got me thinking that actually if I put an episode out on a Friday that anything that's happened over the weekend or in the lead up to, to this weekend's football is going to be old news and my you know my thoughts and everything are going to be a little bit outdated. So I don't think there's quite the appetite yet for two episodes a week, which is something that I toyed with. So what I'm going to do is try and put an episode out on a Wednesday. I know that in a few months' time, that's going to mean that some of my Champions League and Europa League predictions are going to be a bit all over the place because some games will have been played, some games won't have, but I can work around it. We'll see what happens. So this is episode three, and I'm going to go into the weekend's results, the first weekend of the 22-23 Premier League season. And it was a good one. There were some great goals, some fantastic games, and one or two surprise results, uh, some not so surprising. So let's go through that. And then what I want to do before I preview this weekend's fixtures, I want to talk about the mess that is Manchester United Football Club. It's been all over the news. It's been on every radio station, every TV station, sports related, obviously, um, just about what is happening at Manchester United. And I just want to give my thoughts and my opinions on where I believe it has gone wrong for Manchester United pretty much since Alex Ferguson retired. So I'll do that in between previewing the matches. So, as I said, the first weekend of the Premier League has been and gone, and the results were as follows. So first up, we had Crystal Palace against Arsenal. Arsenal winning this one 2-0. I thought Arsenal were fantastic in the opening stages of this game. First 20 minutes, they were really, really at it, and they looked superb. And, you know, well-deserving of their lead. A brilliant, brilliantly worked corner uh, put in eventually by, by Martinelli, who could have had one just before that as well. And the game changed slightly in that the last 10 minutes of the first half, I felt Palace got back into it. And the second half, it really could have gone either way. Eventually, and for me, against the run of play, eventually Arsenal did get that second goal, uh, an own goal from the Crystal Palace defender. Um, but Arsenal were, were really, really good. Really good value for the win. Something for Arsenal to build on. They do have some sort of favourable fixtures coming up as well. So, you know, a good start for Arsenal. I was impressed by Jesus. I was impressed from an attacking standpoint by Zinchenko. I thought he was found wanting a little bit defensively, which is something that I thought about him, you know, thought of him when 
he was a, a Man City player as well. So, you know, bit of work to be done there as well. But Saliba was unbelievable. I think I've said that right, haven't I? Saliba? Saliba? Yeah. I know. I'll get it right one day. Saliba. Of course it's Saliba. I doubted myself. For Crystal Palace, you know, their usual players, you know, Zaha was getting into it. Eze was good. Uh, I was really, really impressed with Anderson. I think once Patrick Vieira had worked out a way to get through the Arsenal team, he was using Anderson's, you know, fantastic range of passing. And it was successful. But Arsenal, as expected, coming out stronger with the win there. On to the 12.30 kickoff on the Saturday. Fulham versus Liverpool. The first surprise result of the weekend. 2-2 draw at Craven Cottage. Everyone, including myself, saw this as a Liverpool win. An easy, easy Liverpool win. But credit to Fulham. Although they took the lead twice and weren't able to see the victory over the line. You know, Mitrovic getting two goals, which is great for him. He's always been... It's always been levelled towards Mitrovic that he's an excellent championship striker, but not quite a Premier League striker. Uh, CC David Nugent and uh, Timu, Timu Puki. Oh, God, I've said that wrong, haven't I? <laughs> um, but you know who I mean. You know who I mean. Mo Salah scoring for Liverpool, of course, keeping that record going of scoring on the opening weekend. And Darwin Nunes with his first Premier League goal. I expect there's going to be more and more from him. And no, Liverpool will, you know, they'll bounce back from this result. Uh, also want a big shout out to Jurgen Klopp, who can now add a dry pitch to the list of excuses for the reason why Liverpool didn't win. So uh, dry pitch joins uh, wind, snow, rain and players having cold feet for excuses. Uh, so keep up the good work there, Mr Klopp. Bournemouth beat Aston Villa 2-0 down on the south coast, a result I did not see coming. And already, as I mentioned last week, you know, pressure is going to be on Steven Gerrard. I know it is one game, but this is not going to have gone down very well, and he will need to pick up some results fairly quickly, or the pressure will be on. Seems like there's been a bit of a falling out with Tyro Mings not in the side and has had the captaincy taken away from him and some interesting comments from Gerard as well. But fair play to Bournemouth starting off their campaign with a victory. Newcastle beat Nottingham Forest, uh, which again, I thought this would be a more cagey game, but no, Newcastle came away with the victory. Nottingham Forest didn't get a single shot on target in this game, which, you know, again, I know it's only the first weekend, might be a slight cause for concern for Steve Cooper, but I'm sure that once they get to grips with the Premier League, you know, they've got a good chance. They've made a lot of signings, a lot of people comparing them to Fulham of a few years back when they bought loads and loads of players and just, you know, it just did not work. Newcastle, as expected, starting off with a victory. Uh, Callum Wilson and Fabian Schaar with the goals there. I think Callum Wilson, if he can stay fit, he is going to be 
a difference maker for Newcastle and could well find himself in the England squad as well uh, for the World Cup coming up. As expected, Spurs swept away Southampton. Southampton took the lead, actually, in this game. Ward-Prowse with a goal. Easily, for, for me, Ward-Prowse is easily their best player, their most technically gifted, most skillful player. But Southampton just, just couldn't keep hold of that lead and eventually were beaten very convincingly 4-1 and Kane and Son didn't even get on the score sheet. So some good, good early signs there for Tottenham as they you know, try and close that gap on the two main title contenders. Leeds came away with a win against Wolves. Wolves took the lead in this one as well, similar to the Southampton game. Uh, I don't think Lee, um, Leeds swept a Wolves aside, uh, but you know, eventually they did get the win. They should have had a penalty in the first half, an absolute stonewall penalty, but it didn't matter in the end. I mean, it does make you wonder what VAR were looking at, but, you know, that's maybe a debate for another day, VAR. So Leeds coming out away with a, a win there, and, you know, is there signs of a little bit of uh, unrest at at Wolves? We've seen Connor Cody leave on loan in the last couple of days to Everton, which I will uh, talk about uh, in a moment, actually, when I when I cover it, the Everton game. Um, so, yeah, it, it's... Um, some interesting times uh, ahead uh, for Wolves and their fans. Everton were the late kickoff. They played Chelsea. Unfortunately for Everton and for Everton fans, it was a Chelsea win. I did watch this game. I thought that Everton were good. I thought they were decent. Chelsea, you know, the, the, in in the end, their their class showed really. Koulibaly, I thought, had an excellent debut. I thought Sterling played well. Um, what was evident, though, was that both teams clearly lacking a focal point up front, a number nine, so to speak. You know, the, the positions that for Everton would ordinarily be occupied by Calvert-Lewin, but he's injured, Rondon was suspended. And for Chelsea, they currently don't have a out-and-out striker in the ilk of, say, Lukaku, who they've obviously loaned back to Inter Milan, or like a Harry Kane, or Jamie Vardy, that sort of that sort of player. They don't have that at the moment. Um, but yeah, Chelsea came away with the win, and look, they're going to continue with their spending. They managed to get Kukurea over the line. Uh, he did feature on Saturday. Uh, he came off the bench. All told, I believe the deal is somewhere in the region of £66 million when you include add-ons, or it might be £62 million. It's over £60 million either way, which for me seems like a hell of a lot of money. Um, but all it does is it strengthens Chelsea and their back line. They are still supposedly after Wesley Fofana. They're supposedly going to come back with a second bid, of around £80 million, but the talk today is that that is still a good £10 million short of Leicester's valuation. I'm sorry. I, 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 I think Wesley Fofana, and I'm going to say this, and it's something that might bite me on the arse, but for me, in five, six years' time, Wesley Fofana could be one of the best centre-backs in the world. 
Leicester cannot turn that money down. But let's let's move on from that. Uh, talking of centre backs, as I mentioned there, Connor Cody has gone to Everton on loan. Um, it seems like a really really good and a good sensible uh, sign in this one. He's on loan. He clearly wasn't in uh, the first team plans at Wolves for some bizarre reason. I've not. I, I, maybe I've missed something there, but I thought he was, you know, he was almost like an adopted son of Wolverhampton. He was that very highly rated. But he's gone. He's gone to Everton on loan, and uh, Everton need a centre back because unfortunately Ben Godfrey did go off injured in the game. Uh, I'd say injured. He's broken his leg and he's out for three months. Um, he was recovering from. He was trying to recover a situation where he'd put a bad back pass in to Pickford. Um, if Chelsea had scored from it, it wouldn't have counted anyway. But Godfrey went in, put the tackle in, and unfortunately has broken his leg. So again, probably another reason that they've gone straight in with a, a loan bid and got Connor Cody. A lot has been said about the fact that. Connor Cody, who is a lifelong Liverpool fan, is now playing for the blue half of Merseyside. Look, he's not the first and he won't be the last player that has played for the rival of their boyhood club. There are loads of them out there. Even just in just in Premier League history, there, there's there's loads out there. So I don't think I, I think Everton fans have already already embraced him. He said himself he knows the area, he knows what the club means to that half of the city. So a great a good a good signing. I would have loved to have seen him actually at, at Leicester, all things considered, but you know, unfortunately not got in there and he is an Everton player. Talking of Leicester City, we move on to the Sunday fixtures. I was at the King Power Stadium. Leicester surrendered a 2-0 lead and ended up drawing 2-2 with Brentford. For me, Leicester were really good value for the win. By the time the second goal went in, I genuinely and naively thought that Leicester would go on to win fairly comfortably. But they, they took their foot off the gas. They slowed down the intensity and the tempo went. And the big difference for me was the fact that Thomas Frank brought subs on. He brought fresh legs on. Yeah, it was a hot day, a hot afternoon. You could, you know, it's the first game of the season. The match fitness isn't quite there. But Brendan Rodgers decided he was only going to make one substitution. And that substitution, that substitute was uh, Dewsbury Hall came off, Pats and Dacker came on. The idea being from what I could see was that let's go two up front. You know, Brentford are going to go for it now. Spaces are going to open up. We've got two up front. We've got Pace in Vardy and Dacker. Uh, and... Let's go for it. I saw nothing of the sort once they came on. And in fact, what I saw was very poor management. Players that didn't know what they were doing in a formation that I don't think they've worked on pre-season. So I'm usually a huge, huge you know, defender of Brendan Rodgers. But I've got to say, he got this completely wrong. And for him to come out post-match and say it was fatigue, it was tiredness... I'm sorry, but when you've got five subs at your disposal, whether you trust those players or not, you've got five subs at your disposal and you use one of them. Um, so it's not good enough, in my opinion. So 
Leicester have started the season pretty much how they were last season, not being able to keep hold of a lead, having to score at least two goals to get a draw against teams that, you know, Leicester should be beating. No disrespect to Brentford. I think they're a wonderful football club. You know, that there's a lot there for those fans to be proud of. But Leicester should be beating them. And when you're 2-0 up at home, you should see this, see the game through. But, hey, that's just me being naive and a little bit blinkered. Onwards and upwards, as they say. Some good performances out there, individual performances. Dewsbury Hall, I think he's going to have a real breakout season. He was, he was fantastic last season, but I think this season... You're going to see a lot, lot more of him. Next up, the other surprise result of the weekend, or maybe not if you're a Manchester United fan, Brighton beating Manchester United 2-1 at Old Trafford. I mean, I, I thought that United would win this, you know, fairly comfortably. But it wasn't to be. And look, I, I've said that I'm going to talk about United on this podcast, so I will do that shortly. So let's not go into it too much now. And the final game of the weekend, West Ham versus Man City. Man City winning two goals from Haaland. So he's off and running. And despite all of the things that have been said and what happened in the Community Shield, he looked every bit the Premier League player in on his Premier League debut. The pace, the power... Just, just everything. Um, you know, he looked like a monster. He, if he can stay fit, he's going to terrorize. He's going to rip this this league apart. He really is, and it's a scary thought for the rest of the league. Uh, I thought it was. I thought it was unlucky that he got brought off and wasn't able to get the hat trick. No guarantees, obviously, that he'll get it. But I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure it won't be long until we see. Haaland taking away the match ball. Uh, so, yeah, a great start for Man City, who, yeah, champions and look stronger. I know it's only the first game, but there we go. So that's the roundup of the weekend's fixtures just gone. Like I said, the big talking point out of the weekend is everything that's happening at Manchester United. Where to start? Where to start with all of this? Now, I didn't see the game. I've seen extended highlights. I've seen the goals. I've seen and heard all of the fallout from it. Now, this isn't something new for Manchester United fans. And since Sir Alex Ferguson retired, the club have been on a decline. There's no two ways about it. I know that they have finished second twice, once under Mourinho, who came out and quite tongue-in-cheek said it was one of his biggest achievements in football. And then once under Solskjaer as well, but the gap was so big between, between them and Manchester City that they weren't really title challengers. They were just almost like the best of the rest that season. I think ultimately where this comes down to is the poor ownership of this football club, which for a number of years, you know, the, the, the cracks were being papered over because Sir Alex Ferguson, the greatest manager 
for me in the history of, of football, let alone the Premier League or, or English football, British football even, um, we're still winning stuff. Back-to-back Premier League, Champions League finals. So the Glazers took over in 2005. Uh, and United were reaching Champions League finals. They they beat Chelsea. They lost to Barcelona twice, which, you know, at that time, <laughs> you know, if you were going to lose two Champions League finals, that was who it was going to be against. So the club was still successful. They were still winning stuff. And they had a manager who was able to get the best and build teams from players that you wouldn't necessarily call world-class, but they got it. They got what it meant to be a Manchester United player and they understood you know, the way that the club worked and they were coached into whatever Ferguson wanted. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way that these players weren't deemed world-class, but you can look at some of those squads that Ferguson had and the fact that he won anything with them is, is remarkable. You know, there's games where John O'Shea and Fabio Silva played in midfield and they go and beat Arsenal. That's crazy. Good players, but not world-class. And maybe that comes on to partly some of the problems since Ferguson has left, in that the recruitment policy almost feels like a, well, who's popular? I call it kind of, I call them FIFA players. Players that are really good on a highlight reel, but when it comes down to it, and when it comes down to playing a 38-game season in one of the toughest leagues, the most competitive leagues in the world, they've not got it and they, haven't, they don't want it enough. Take Paul Pogba, for example. Looks fantastic in a highlight reel for Juventus. We all remember that volleyed goal that just kept getting played over and over and over again. And everyone's saying, oh, United made such a mistake letting him go when he was 18, 19, whatever it was. And then he comes back with all this fanfare. He's one of the most expensive players in the world. And he just didn't want it. And there's a reason why Ferguson binned him off in the first place. Now, I firmly believe that some of these players that have supposedly let United down over the last few years... I think under Ferguson, they would have thrived. I think Lingard would have been a fantastic player under Ferguson. Because actually, when he wanted to, Lingard works hard, doesn't stop running. You know, and and Ferguson had a number of players like that over the years. You know, take away corners and free kicks. Was David Beckham overly special? As a set-piece taker, he was phenomenal. But what he had is he worked hard, a great work ethic, and by all accounts, a great professional. So, you know, Ji Sung Park, I can talk about loads of these players that Ferguson brought in that, you know, he just had a good eye for a player and he could get the best out of them. Don't get me wrong, United, under Ferguson, signed some fantastic and phenomenal world-class players. Rooney, for example. I'll have nobody 
tell me that Rooney wasn't world-class at one point. Rio Ferdinand, Vidic, Evra, world-class players. But sprinkled in with a bit of, you know, youth as well and players that Ferguson knew would run through a brick wall for him, they were successful. But like I say, what you have now at Manchester United and what you've had for a very long time is someone running the day-to-day operation of the club in Ed Woodward who isn't a football man. You know, he's a, he's, he comes from the, the, the finance world, I believe. I, th- I believe he was part of the... Uh, he, he worked for the company that helped broker the deal for the Glazers to eventually be the majority shareholder of United. So a lot of mistakes have been happen, have happened in recruitment. You know, a lot of these players on paper have looked like good signings because they're big names or, you know, they're going to sell shirts and all this sort of stuff. But you have to have players that fit what the manager wants to do. And I look at Man City and you can talk about Man City spending as much as you want in terms of transfers... But Manchester United's spending in transfers is very, very similar. And if you look at the players that Pep has bought, and yes, he can go and buy anyone. But for me, he's never had the best left back in the world. He's never had the best right back in the world. They're great players. Kyle Walker is fantastic. Cancelo is is fantastic. Um, Before that, you know... The other guy whose name I don't want to mention, you know, was he the best left back in the world? No, but he obviously recognised he fits in, you know, he fits the style of football I want to play. And not only that, for me with Man City, the, the, the big thing there, and I think this is not just Man City, you see it at other clubs as well. I think Klopp has done it uh, uh, fantastically as well, is they have been... Some of these players have been coached to be better players. And it's almost like the art of coaching players to be better has gone. And what United have done is they've tried to buy ready-made stars that they just think will come in, fit in, love living in the city of Manchester. There'll be no problems with them. There'll be no issues with their attitude or anything like that. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Now, Angel Di Maria was so highly thought of at Real Madrid, but he didn't want to go to Manchester United. And he lasted a season, hated living there. I know there was issues with his house being broke into and stuff, but he didn't want to be there. It was a bad fit. It really was. You look at the day-to-day running, and you know the Glazers have just put the wrong people in there as well. Because, you know, which, which, when, when they've spent as much on transfers as Man City and they are so far behind, you know that there's an issue. And now what bring, that, that then brings me on to the, just the general running of the, of the football club. Now, one of the things that's been levelled at the Glazers is that they live 3,000 miles away in America and they don't care about the club. And that is probably very, very true. To them, Manchester United is a cash machine. It is a cash point that whenever they need a little bit of money, 
they can just sell a few shares and make, you know, make a decent amount of money off them. The fact remains is that there is still a significant amount of debt at Manchester United, which the Glazers don't care about. But the reality is, is that debt is only going to get bigger. Since, I think it's 2010, up until May last year, the Glazers had basically chucked away over a billion pound on financing the club in the form of debt, in the form of interest repayments and dividend payouts to your stockholders. Now, I'm not going to go into finance and stuff because, you know, my, my knowledge of it is very limited. And this isn't a finance podcast. It's a football podcast and me giving my thoughts. And I will get onto the playing side of it soon. But not only have you got poor recruitment in the player department, poor recruitment, it seems, in the scouting department, and poor uh, backroom staff as well, that money could have been invested there. They may have, they may have spent that money on transfers, but it's not been invested elsewhere. So on top of all of those things, on top of just the general running of the club being poor, the amount of the amount of money that's been lost in you know debt and repayment and interest and stuff like that, what you've also got is a stadium that was once the envy of Europe is now falling apart. And I'm not even exaggerating about that. It is a long-running joke that the roof leaks at Old Trafford. And it's just not the stadium it was. And when you look around, just even in England alone, you look at the Emirates, you look at the Etihad, which I know a bit different because I think it was gifted to them after the Commonwealth Games. You look at uh, West Ham Stadium, which obviously was the uh, used for the Olympics. Uh, but you look at Spurs, you look at... Chelsea are going to be redeveloping. Liverpool have been able to redevelop Anfield. But that's because their owners have been good with the money and there isn't significant debt against the club in which those loans, those loans were, the, the, the loans to buy Manchester United were, uh, you know, have been put against the club's assets. So they can't reinvest money. If they reinvest money into the stadium, there is no money for players. And unfortunately, as a result of poor recruitment on the playing side of things, you know, more money then needs to be spent on players to improve the team, which means the stadium gets ignored. You know, Carrington, the training ground, is no longer seen as... The, the standard bearer for training grounds for professional, you know, high-level elite football teams. And we're not, we're not talking about any old team here. We're talking about Manchester United, who, you know, particularly for me at my age, the biggest club in the world, the most supported club when I was a kid, you know, certainly in this country, you know, probably in Europe, most definitely the world. But they are now lagging so far behind the likes 
of Man City, Liverpool, Chelsea, PSG, Real Madrid. It's it's becoming embarrassing. And, you know, United have earned that sense of entitlement. Now, I try and put this into context and think about my club. And I'm not going to make comparisons about how well Leicester is run because you know they've got their own issues at the moment. But what I want to do is is I want to put myself in, you know, the shoes of a United fan. And if I supported a club that have been successful for the last 20, 30 years, and they still make ridiculous amounts of revenue, but it you don't see improvements in on the pitch, you don't see improvements off the pitch, questions need to be asked. And this is why you get protests at Old Trafford. And I completely get it. Now, I don't think that these protests need... Well, these protests should not turn violent. Um, and, and for anyone that sits there and thinks, well, I don't see what the problem is with the Glazers. They've invested a billion into buying players. I've already said what it is. It's poor recruitment, employing the wrong people at the football club, not necessarily managers, but those in the background, you know, and, and yeah, it's just one big mess. So let's fast forward to Sunday. And effectively what's happened is Eric Ten Hag has gone into this game and he's not been able to start the season with the players that he wanted and he's stuck with players that he doesn't want. There's, you know, you've, you've got, again, and again, this comes down to the poor running of the football club previously. They can't get rid of players like Phil Jones because Phil Jones won't take a pay cut whilst he's under, uh, you know, he won't take a pay cut to go to a different club whilst he's still under contract at United. And this is where the poor running comes into it. Who thought to give Phil Jones 125 grand a week and a bigger contract? Who thought to give Juan Mata another deal? Vidic, not Vidic, Matic, another deal. From a footballing point of view on the pitch, was it right to go for 36-year-old Cristiano Ronaldo and pay him 300 grand a week? Was it right to give David De Gea 375 grand a week? You know, so Ten Hag's now stuck with players that, quite rightly, don't want to move because no one's going to pay Phil Jones 125 grand a week. He's going to have to take a huge pay cut. So you stuck. I'm picking on Phil Jones there, but there's a number of players in in that scenario. But something is rotten with that football club. I've already talked about a lot of it. And I think that is seeping through to the players that are there. And you look at players like Rashford, who just looks a shadow of the player he was four or five years ago. Rashford's rise into the Manchester United first team was more luck than than anything, if, if we're being honest. There was an injury crisis. I remember there was a bit of an injury crisis under Van Gaal and he had to promote some youth players for uh, a European game Rashford came on uh, came came into that and yeah was was fantastic scored a couple of goals 
and then became became a regular. And at one point, people were saying that you know he was he was better than better than Mbappe, or could be better than Mbappe. For the last couple of years, he's just not been the player that we we thought he would turn out to be. And then I look at play, players like Jaden Sancho as well, who United chased for two years. They signed for £80 million. Did not see enough of him last season. To, to I did not see anything that convinced me he was an £80 million player. I was willing to sort of say, right, well, it's his first season. He's been in the Bundesliga. I know he came through Man City's academy. But again, Sunday, very lacklustre, very poor. And I feel like this is a make-or-break season for Sancho. £80 million. Again, is that is that poor negotiating skills on United's front? Who knows? Have they really scouted the player or do they just are they just going by headlines of oh Sancho ripping it up in the Bundesliga? Released by Man City. And then there's one or two others, you know. Harry Maguire didn't have a great game. Luke Shaw, again, didn't have a great game. And I feel like one of the big problems as well at United is because of the feeling around the club and because of how the fans are feeling at the moment, the minute that team sheet came out and I saw it all over my my Twitter timeline, all I saw... And I completely understand it, so I'm not criticising the United fans here. All I saw was negativity towards the fact that Fred and McTominay were started in midfield. Now, the reason that Fred and McTominay started in midfield is because actually Ten Hag hasn't been backed enough in this window to get the players that he wants. It was very slow to start off with, fans were kicking off, then a couple of players came in, but then it slowed up again. You know, this Frankie Dion thing has just gone on forever. He would be one of those, he would take one of those positions. You know, look, I'm sorry, but as someone who watched Kante for a season and someone that has been has watched Wilfred and Diddy for about four or five seasons, Fred is not a defensive midfielder at all. Not for the not in the Premier League. I think he's a good box to box midfielder, and he was one of the shining lights from the Ralph Ranick era. So straight away, there was just negativity, and I think that that is a big problem as well, is because there is so much animosity towards the owners and towards some of the players as well that there is just an overall negative atmosphere at Old Trafford. And actually, I think United are a, are a better away team. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think it's because of the things that I've just said. But it also comes back to that thing of what has happened to coaching players. If Eric Ten Hag is supposed to be this genius manager, tactical, you know, whatever, great coach, so highly rated. And look, I think he will be a good manager. He may end up falling into the trap of, you know, struggles at United, gets a few results, might get a couple of players, they'll have some great moments, have some crap moments, 
And then ultimately in two, three years, might get the sack because he's not delivered. But then he's also not been given the tools. But can he not coach Fred and McTominay to work better together? If you think about what I spoke about a few moments ago with Ferguson, you know, he was able to get, you know, players like John O'Shea to play central midfield and beat Arsenal at home. So I don't know, maybe the art of maybe the art of actually coaching players is is, is gone. And maybe that isn't something now. And, and maybe Manchester United's whole philosophy is buying ready-made stars. The one criticism that I will sort of level at Ten Hag at the weekend is now that you have five subs available, he shouldn't have been afraid to make changes at halftime. There was players there in that first half who just weren't at the races. I remember Mourinho under Chelsea the first time round. He would not be afraid to make changes 20, 30 minutes into a game. And if that meant subbing someone for the sake of then getting the result, then he did it. You have to be ruthless. But then herein lies the problem with modern footballers. You know, when we talk about Mourinho's first into Chelsea, we are talking 20 years ago now. Modern footballers, I just don't think they seem they don't have the resilience to be able to cope with the fact that, oh, I've been dragged at half-time, how dare he... Does he know I'm on 180 grand a week? And all, you know, so you know again. I don't want to overly level level too much criticism towards Ten Hag, but I felt he should have done that. And then he made three subs in the 89th minute. Um, huge learning curve for him. You know, the Premier League is not the Dutch league, and what he's done is he's gone from one of the most well structured, well run football clubs in the world. And that's not something that has come about in the last 10, 15 years either. Ajax, yeah. We're, we're, yeah, Ajax are just, are just world famous for being so well ran and developing players, you know, through, through to their youth system. And, you know, they, they sell players on for huge profits and it keeps, it keeps everything going and they ultimately they're always in the top two or three of the Dutch league. But, he's come, but Ten Hag has got a huge job on his hands. So with everything that I've just said, it then shocks me. It then shocks me even more to hear that pretty much immediately after the game on Sunday, United have a bid for Arnautovic, Marco Arnautovic, rejected, 33 years old. Uh, yeah, former West Ham and Stoke player, now at Bologna. And they are linked with... Uh, Rabiot, who is currently at Juventus. Now, I think he's a, a great midfielder, and actually, he's he's the kind of the beginning of what he he could be the beginning of a change for that midfield because, again, poor whatever you want to call it, but United are buying players, but all in the wrong places. But apparently, and I, it's not something I realised until I did a lot more research into it over the last day or so, the guy has an attitude problem. The guy uh, is not well-liked at Juventus by the fans, by the club in general, I don't think. I don't think financially, technically, tactically, anything like that, he suits Juventus. He's in the final year of his contract. 
But what this screams to me is we've just lost. We need to buy. We are so far away from Barcelona's valuation of Frankie de Jong, it's not going to happen. Even though, do you know what? United should should be able to meet the valuation, but as I say, debts, etc., etc. It just screamed to me of, yeah, we've we've lost and we need to get players in, and they're cheap options. It wasn't that long ago that United were linked with a £110 million move for Declan Rice. Again, I'm not saying he would have resolved all the problems. I think there's more problems there. I haven't even got on to Ronaldo. I'm not going to either uh, as to whether he is having a, an influence over that dressing room and why players like Rashford and Sancho may not be performing. That remains to be seen. But they just feel like cheap options. And what you're doing is you're adding two players who have reputations for bad attitudes and all of that into a dressing room that already feels really, really fractious. Now, in the last few hours at the time of recording this, the Arnautovic deal is completely off. There has been huge fan backlash, some of it over uh, some racism claims, which I'm not going to go into. And I just think, you you know, the fans are like, are you being serious, you know? Given what happened on Sunday, do you really? Why are we going for this player? But and Bologna are, Bologna are trying to take advantage of United and, and get as much out of the deal as possible. So United have pulled the plug. But the Rabio deal seems like it's going to happen. Fifteen million pound. And look, you know, he got bombed out at PSG, which to be bombed out of there for having uh, a poor attitude is one thing. You know, given given the egos that have been there over the last ten years, and not very well liked at Juventus, what's to say that actually he doesn't find in in United? He you know he may find the club that finally gets him to change his attitude, knuckles down, and becomes a great great player for the next three four years. It may also be an absolute disaster, and he could be gone. By next summer and it just it, it just feels like deja vu with United it really really does now some of you are probably sitting there thinking well why are you why are you bothered about this you 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 because uh, I feel I think I've probably spoken quite passionately about this and yes I am a, a Leicester fan of 30 years but I'm also a football fan and like I say I I have you know some of my best friends are Manchester United fans my mum is a Manchester United fan. And, you know, I I wouldn't want to be in the position that they're in. They will probably still finish top six. But we're talking about a club that, you know, makes huge amounts of money off the pitch. You know, the revenue is huge. And it's just not being invested in the right places when it should be. So, in summary, I, I, I just... Don't see things changing too much at Manchester United until the owners are gone. But with that debt and that debt getting bigger and bigger and bigger, it just makes the club so expensive to buy for for any potential uh, bidders. When you look at the, the fact that Chelsea, who were sold because of sanctions against the owner, 
went for two and a half billion, who's going to stump up the money to take over United right now? When it's not just a case of taking over, clearing the debt, giving a manager 200 million and everything's hunky-dory. On the pitch it might be, but you've still got the issue of the training ground, the stadium, all the other stuff, you know. I read earlier today that there's still money owed for transfers as well, for players that they've bought. But I think that's a that's a common thing at a lot of clubs because clubs tend to pay in instalments these days uh, to get around FFP. So I think United will, will still be in the top five or six. I think there's some way off from the top four unless Ten Hag really, really turns it around with the players that he's got. And whether that involves Ronaldo or not, I do not know. I can't see him moving. Not in this window. So that's my take on what is going on at United. Uh, that went on a bit longer than I thought it would. Uh, so, you know, I, I hope I hope you found that interesting. And I hope you agreed with a lot of what I said. And some of it will be stuff that you've heard before and stuff that you... You know, I've regurgitated some of it from, you know, what has already been spoken about, like I say, in the media over the last few days. But I just wanted to give my thoughts on it. My intention on this week's podcast was to actually talk about who I thought was going to finish higher out of Spurs and Arsenal. But I'm going to have to save that for a couple of weeks' time because I'm not going to make this podcast too long. It's already gone over what I would like to, um, that might be for another time. So I, I, I felt like I had to talk about United and give my thoughts on it. Um, I mean, the, thinking about it now, there's there's lots of stuff I even even talk talked about uh, when it comes to United. You know, again, it comes down to recruitment. Have they have they got the right have they brought the right managers in? When other managers were available, if you look at four of the other top six or big six sides Guardiola, Klopp, Tuchel, Conte all of those all of those managers have been available for Manchester United to get at some point in the last 10 years now that wouldn't necessarily remedy things off the pitch and all the things that I've spoken about but I do think that on the pitch you would have seen more success than you have Anyway, I'm moving on. I'm moving on from United. I'd be interested in your thoughts. You know, message me on, on, on Twitter, at Added Football. I'd be really intrigued to, to, to get your thoughts on what I've said, whether you think I'm talking nonsense or, or, or not. Right, let's talk about match week two, as it's now referred to, or game week two of the Premier League this weekend, uh, Saturday the 13th of August. Uh, the first game is Villa versus Everton, which is a lunchtime kickoff. I think that will be a draw. Uh, Villa really could do with the win, though. But then I guess, you know, Everton don't want to start off with two defeats. Next up, Arsenal versus Leicester. As much as I would love to say that Leicester are going to go and sneak a win, I just can't see anything other than an Arsenal win and Gabriel Jesus, who's got a decent record against Leicester. I think he will get a couple. Brighton-Newcastle, interesting game. You know, Brighton are just coming off that victory at Old Trafford. And 
Newcastle are obviously a team on the up. Oh, I think Newcastle are going to sneak this one. So I'm going to go for an away win on that. Man City, Bournemouth. Uh, is, is it too obvious to say Man City are going to win and Haaland's going to get two? Maybe. But I mean, you look at Man City's opening five fixtures. I, I said it to some friends a few, uh, a few weeks back when the fixtures came out. After five games, Man City could easily have 15 points and Haaland could already be in double figures. So, sorry, I think, I think it's going to be a case of damage limitation for Bournemouth and trying to keep that score down to a respectable number. Uh, Southampton leads. Oof. Tricky one, that. I really do think Southampton are going to struggle this season. So, uh, And I think Leeds, Leeds are looking okay and they're getting some players back. So... I'm going to go with Leeds on that one. Wolves, Fulham. I think Wolves will pull themselves out of whatever whatever mire they're in at the minute. And I think they will beat Fulham. Brentford, Manchester United. Uh, a couple of United fans that I've spoken to are saying a Brentford win. I, I imagine that is just coming from a place where they're just so... Uh, fed up of what's going on and I know that feeling all too well you just cannot see when the next win's going to come I think there'll be a reaction from United I am going to go for a Man United win oof okay on to Sunday Nottingham Forest are playing West Ham you know the Forest fans are going to be up for this this is the first home game in the Premier League for 23 years so I imagine that this one, you know, the atmosphere is going to be amazing there. I'm actually going to go for a Forest win on that one. I think mean, they're going to sneak a win. Chelsea Spurs, huge, huge game. First real test for this so-called, uh, for this Spurs, Spurs side that are so, so-called so uh, title contenders. Uh, a huge, a huge opportunity for them to lay a marker down here. I'm going to go for a draw, but I think that'll be a really, really good game. Uh, I may or may not get to see it as I am going on holiday this weekend. And then on Monday, we have Liverpool versus Crystal Palace. I mean, Palace are always tricky opposition, but I expect Liverpool being at home to get the result here. So that's my predictions for the weekend's fixtures coming up. Uh, and this has been episode three of added time a bit longer than I normally like to do a bit longer than the last two episodes but I hope you've enjoyed it nonetheless I don't think I'm going to be able to put an episode out next week as I am on holiday so I'll try and keep up with with Twitter and stuff but I don't know what my I genuinely I don't know what my signal is going to be like on holiday uh, so it might be that I give my predictions on Twitter or I might do a quick um, a quick video on Instagram or something like that. Uh, I'll think of something. I'll think of something. I'm with Sonny next week and his uh, his wife and my family. Uh, so, yeah, maybe if I can get signal, maybe I can uh, drag Sonny into the predictions as well and we do a quick, a quick Instagram video or, or something. Anyway, I digress. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to follow... Myself on Twitter, that's Added Football, and I'm also on Instagram. If you search for Added Time, you will find me on there. Don't forget to follow Sunny, the Clubhouse with Sunny G, fantastic podcast. Don't forget to follow Finn on Twitter and on Twitch as well. Search for the Finn Steel. Uh, 
Uh, and don't forget to follow Games and Graps, a monthly video game and wrestling podcast that posts everywhere. Thank you very much for listening. Greatly appreciated. And I will speak to you very soon.